Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. It's nice to see you this morning. I was looking over my notes just before service and before praying with Mary Lee um, to prepare for the service, and I realized there's a little treasure hunt for you today in the message. I'm going to cover several different subjects in school this morning. And so you can like look for like, oh, that was science. Oh, there's government class. And see how many you find. I did not intend it, but this morning I was like, oh, the class is going to be covering many subjects in school this morning. The first one, I'll just give you one, right? Like sometimes teachers will do that. They'll give you one so you feel good going into the, the test, a freebie. The Lord is one. That's math. And, and in God's math, one plus one plus one equals one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord is one. So there you go. That's the starter. You know me, right? I like to goof around a little bit. We're having fun. Okay, so math done. Um, two verses are the basis for this sermon series called The Lord is One. The first is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the other verse is in Exodus 34. God comes to Moses and says his name, who he is, and what he's like. He says, I'm the Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so I was thinking about these two verses, and I sort of mashed them together and put them into language? I don't know. I put them in my own words. And so if I say it, it sounds like this. Here, listen, guys, this is important. The Lord and creator of all the earth loves you and never ceases to amaze. He overflows with compassion, grace, loyal love, and faithfulness. Make him your Lord, your God, and worship no other. Give him your heart, soul, and strength in undivided devotion. I'm not going to write a whole Bible translation, guys. But if you like that, there's a little tidbit of the Bill version of the Bible for you. (laughs) Somebody did that. You know, the message is a translation or a paraphrase of the Bible written by a pastor for his congregation. What an endeavor. I'm not doing that, guys. (laughs) Okay. Uh, In this series, we aim to gaze upon the beauty of God who loves us and calls us to love him in return. We're looking into scripture to see what he's like. How he reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let's make it our goal to stop and listen and respond as we see him for who he is. All right? Last week, Marilee introduced how water is a little bit like God. It comes in solid, liquid, and vapor form, right? But it's always the same substance. It's H2O, regardless of what form you encounter it in. Try not to put any liquid substance your way by spitting while I'm preaching here, guys. Um, But God is like that, too. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are revealed and expressed in different ways, but they're the same substance. It's the same God, you know? In my goofy way, I was thinking, if water's H2O, he's (laughs) G-O-D. He's always that. He's always him. Whether you're encountering him as Son, Spirit, or Father, he's God one substance. That's really, really good. 
And really, I think I'm going to just kind of hammer on that point all morning long, guys. <laughs> Marilee talked about the, the series in general. She talked about God as Father, and today is about Jesus, the Son. But I want to think about Jesus a lot in terms of how he is what the Father is, how they're not two different substances or two different people, but they are two parts of our one God. So as we turn to think about Jesus, I wonder if any of you have ever thought about the father and the son like this guy from the Lego movie. Good cop, bad cop, right? He's so nice and sweet over here. He's like, oh, hey there, buddy. <laughs> How you doing today, <laughs> little Lego buddy? And then his head flips around and he's over here. He's like, where were you? What do you do with the piece of resistance? Or whatever he does. I don't know. <laughs> but... um. It's a really common thing for people to think of the father as the bad cop, interrogator, ready to punish crimes. But Jesus is the good cop. He's compassionate. He's meek and mild and sweet. <laughs> He's got little glasses on his yellow Lego head. <laughs> oh, boy. What was I trying to get at? Oh, it's a common misconception. I used to think this way myself, right? Um, <clears throat> And so I want to discuss some counterpoints to help us balance out our view of father and son. And the first is from the Deuteronomy verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the Hebrew word for one there is used in a different place where Moses presents to a gathered group of people like this one what God has said to him. And it says they responded with one voice saying, we will do, what do they say? Let me look. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. So what does that mean? If you were all to respond with one voice, does it mean you spoke in unison? Probably not exactly literally that, but it meant in unity, in agreement with one voice, we say yes, right? And so to me, that's a little bit like music class, a choir, right? A really well-trained choir sings in time together right? In, together in, in time, in unity, in harmony with one another. And like a choir God, when he speaks, Father, Son, and Spirit are in perfect harmony. They're in sync with one another. They're singing the same uh, music together, right? When the Lord sings, it's perfectly in unison. Okay, another way to think about God, if we think about Father, Son, and Spirit making decisions, is it like the Supreme Court of the United States? <laughs> no, emphatic no's in the room. Well, this little chart is, it shows all the justices of the Supreme Court down one side and then all the same justices here, and you go to a block in the middle and it shows how much this justice voted in agreement with this one and its percentages. You probably can't read that from there, but that's what this little picture is. And so, you know, some justices vote in alignment with others more frequently and maybe disagree more over here with this one. But when it comes to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, every verdict is unanimous. All decisions are unanimous. There's no dissenting opinion within the Trinity. Every act of God comes from a unanimous decision. Let's do this. Father, Son, Spirit, yes, yes, yes. And so God is not like the Supreme Court of the United States. And I'm grateful. <laughs> Aren't you as well? 
So when you read the most loving, compassionate, self-sacrificing act of Jesus, what are you seeing? The result of a unanimous decision of God to act in that way. When you read something that's tough to swallow because it's judgment or wrath, anger of the Lord expressed in the Bible, that's a unanimous decision of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not angry dad, good cop son. They've decided together this is appropriate right here and now. And so thinking about judgment, wrath, and justice a little bit, it brings up a question for me, maybe for you as well. Are those like oil and water? Justice and mercy don't mix, right? Sometimes we think that way, but I think that's a misconception too. And for me anyways, when I've thought that way, it's based on my own impure human justice and mercy. I struggle to be both together. I struggle to be just appropriately. I fly off the handle. (laughs) I lose my cool. I lose my temper. I say things I shouldn't have said. You know, I overreact and go too far. You know, the whole pendulum swinging thing us humans do. It's like, this is wrong. I'm going to fix it. Whoops. This was wrong in the other direction. Raise your hand if you've ever seen that. Not done it yourself. Just seen it in play. Yes. Okay, yeah. Everybody who works in an organization, corporate America, we swing the pendulum sometimes. <laughs> That's been my experience when I worked in corporate America. It's my experience as a person. But God's not like that. He's not vindictive. He's not seeking revenge. He's not, um, he doesn't overreact. He doesn't fly off the handle. Remember last week, Marilee talked about how he's slow to anger, right? He doesn't just lose his cool all of a sudden and freak out like I do. Thank you, Jesus. So God's judgment is never separate from his grace, compassion, love, and faithfulness. It's not like oil and water. He's calm, self-controlled when he's angry. He's measured, he's appropriate, and he's slow to anger. And so thinking about justice and mercy, I thought about the cross. Let's read about it a little bit. Isaiah 53, this is a prophecy about what Jesus would do at the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Romans chapter 3, Paul calls Jesus a sacrifice of atonement. In 2 Corinthians, he writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So these are a few verses that help us to see how justice and mercy meet at the cross, right? There is punishment. That was in the verse in Isaiah. There's mercy and there's forgiveness too. Both are happening at the same time. On the cross, all mankind's sin was punished. Justice was satisfied. Jesus took it on our behalf, giving us access to mercy Both are happening at the same time. Okay, so coming back to belief in an angry father and a compassionate son, I think if that belief gets going in your mind, it gets uh, built, fueled 
by something called confirmation bias. This is where we find evidence to support what we already believe, and we become blind to any evidence to the contrary. A neat little infographic there, isn't it? We believe this circle. Here's facts and evidence in this circle, and we only like where they overlap. <laughs> where the facts say something we don't, doesn't fit in our existing framework, we just tend to ignore it. It's confirmation bias. There's lots of psychology studies about that. It's like class, right? I'm helping you too much. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Cheating on the quiz. The teacher is giving out answers. Okay. <clears throat> so I thought what we might want to look at just briefly today is a couple of bias busters, I call them. <laughs> Some facts and evidence that are not in that little Venn diagram center section. So the, the father is compassionate. It's in Exodus 34. Merrily talked about it last week. Let's look at one more example. Psalm 103, just a chapter that I love in the Bible. It says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. So God in father here and son and spirit is compassionate. He's loving. He gives righteousness to children's children. And actually, before he created the entire universe, he had these feelings toward you and toward me. And it goes forever into eternity as well. God is compassionate. The Father is compassionate. What about Jesus? Does he ever play a little bad cop action? Does he ever have anger? Well, Matthew chapter 23 is called the seven woes. <laughs> yeah, tough pill to swallow. Imagine this, Jesus with exclamation points saying, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, seven times. You hypocrites, blind guides, you snakes and brood of vipers. He says to the Pharisees, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Okay, Jesus can play the bad cop when he needs to. <laughs> so, okay, is he overdoing it? Is it inappropriate? Or is it measured? Is it self-controlled? Was he slow to get to this point? Well, who is he talking to? He's talking to people who perverted justice. They didn't just pervert justice in some secular government system either. These are the religious leaders, right? This is like... Me perverting justice here, right? They had a role to play in the religious structure, you know? People looked to them as, you know, to teach them about the Bible. They represented God and they were misrepresenting him. They were greedy, self-indulgent. Jesus said they're like whitewashed tombs. There's some ugly stuff going on in these people. They're gaining power and feeding their ego through their role rather than serving the people they're called to serve. That's messed up. That's a brood of vipers. <laughs> and Jesus says, if you read Matthew 23, you'll see all that context in there. And one of the things he says is, man, you're straining out gnats and swallowing camels, guys. You're forgetting the most important stuff. And what does he list? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The attributes of God are pushed to the side for this other stuff. It's appropriate for Jesus to call him out. And he does so in that measured, self-controlled sense of anger. 
Okay, so those are two bias busters. Did it work? How's your confirmation bias going? Good? Okay, good, great. Glad to hear it. Thank you. <laughs> so Father, Son, and Spirit are one in compassion toward his children, one in anger toward people who oppress and pervert justice. The Lord is one. Are you getting that message? I might have said that in a couple of different ways this morning. I will. I will right now. Thank you, Marilee. She said, say it a few more times. So, Father, Son, and Spirit, speak with one voice. Render every verdict by unanimous decision. They're of one substance, of one character. And in the Bible, give us this unified, continuous story where God patiently develops a plan that's redemptive in nature and climaxes in Jesus. Okay? One God developing one story through history, through all the pages of your Bible that culminate in Jesus. Jesus fulfills the promises and the prophecies that came hundreds of years before that are recorded in Scripture. He doesn't do away with them. This is important too. Just as we go good cop, bad cop with father and son, sometimes we go Old Testament, New Testament. We're done with that stuff and we move over here. But it's not true. It's one story about God and how he relates to people. And it applies to how he relates to us. Tells us who he is. Helps us see who we are with respect to him. And so Jesus says, hey, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, which is a way of saying the Old Testament scriptures. I didn't come to abolish that. I'm not doing away with it. I came to fulfill it. That's a powerful statement. Spend a lot of time there, but we won't. (laughs) You can do that in your Bible study this week. The Old Testament created categories and types, right? Like prophet, priest, king, anointed one or Messiah, sacrificial lamb. It's like three different kinds of lambs, actually. Um, Sidetrack, tangents. Um, (laughs) These categories are created in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament builds an anticipation for fulfillment. And then Jesus comes and does fulfill them, right? He's the ultimate high priest, far beyond the priesthood through the line of Aaron. He's the perfectly righteous, benevolent king. He does what David, Solomon, and the rest could never do. He is God's anointed one, the promised Messiah who was to come. And bam, he comes on the scene and he is that guy. He's the lamb whose blood is spilled for our forgiveness. Perfect sacrifice once and for all. To give more words for it, Paul writes about the Old Testament religious ceremonies and celebrations and systems. And in the CSB, it says, these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. I love that way of thinking about it. And so if we start to put these things together, what we get is Jesus is the culmination of this continuous story. Jesus actually embodies promises received, prophecies fulfilled, and the foreshadowing that becomes substance. The foreshadowing pointed to him. Or another way to think about it. I'm just throwing so much spaghetti at the wall this morning, aren't I? That wasn't meant to be a class thing, but maybe you'll figure it out. Maybe that was chemistry. I don't know. You know, if, you, if the spaghetti's cooked and you throw it at the wall, it sticks. I took this literally when I first started cooking spaghetti, and I, 
<laughs> is it done? <laughs> I threw a noodle at the wall. <laughs> nope, not yet. <laughs> it's much quicker to just taste it. <laughs> <than> my, <laughs> I've learned. Anyways, <clears throat> another way to think about this stuff, which is food related, is as a meal. The Old Testament sets the table. The New Testament serves the food. But it's two parts of the same meal prepared by one host. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God. Isn't that a cool way to think about it? That's a turkey. It's Thanksgiving's coming up this week. It's a good time to think about it in that way. Jesus is the food. Oh my goodness, Matthew 26. The night before he goes to the cross, he says, Hey, take and eat. This is my body. He gives his disciples bread. This is my body. I'm the food. He says, here's a cup, drink. This is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's time for the meal. Our one God, full of compassion, slow to anger and gracious, developed this plan for our redemption. He himself in the form of the Son gave his body and blood at the culminating point in history. Isn't that cool? incredible it's incredible then he rose from the dead and he promised to return and so the story actually continues the point we're at is where we're waiting for another climactic moment to come when jesus returns he'll right every wrong he'll bring final justice he will return to welcome those who accept him into eternal life with him Another meal will be had. It's going to be so good. Okay. Get your hand out, your gear shifter. Who knows how to drive a manual? Pretty good, New Day. I'm proud of you. All right. All right. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Who knows, <laughs> who knows how to drive a manual and is under the age of 30? Okay. 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 Yes. Well done. Well done, young people. <laughs> it's fun, right? Yeah, it's fun. yes, I hear yeses. <laughs> and and some head shakings. Why would you why would you do that? <laughs> oh, where were we? Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> um John chapter 1 reveals the identity of Jesus in some really cool ways. So let's go there next, all right? Um in the first three verses of John chapter 1, like the beginning of this gospel, like this is important stuff. Jesus is revealed as the pre-existing word of God. He gets this title, word of God. He's existing before everything else. By him, all is made. And we get this picture from Genesis, right? John's getting you to think of the beginning in Genesis, where the spirit hovers over the waters where the Father speaks everything into creation. And he says, Jesus is that spoken word. God expressed. That's who he is. Uh, he goes on in verse 14 to talk about how Jesus is divine and human and the Son. So let's read, let's read that one together. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. <sighs> okay, so 
yeah, this is so good. Okay, this points out his divinity, points out his humanness, like flesh part. It points out that he's son. Another translation calls him the only begotten son of God, right? And it points back to one of our foundational verses for this series, Exodus 34, in some really cool ways. So let's just look at it for a minute. First of all, glory. Do you remember last week when Mary said, Moses said to God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And here John says, Jesus is that glory. We've seen the glory of God. The glory of the one and only son is that glory. Jesus is God. It's a really cool way of saying it, isn't it? Yeah, the Bible is crafted. It is amazing literature and so much more, so much more than that. It's the word of God, living and active, but also beautiful, beautifully composed. Okay, grace and truth. These two words, okay, grace and truth are English words. Hopefully you noticed that. These are translations from Greek, but they map back onto Hebrew words from Exodus 34. Those last two attributes of God. Remember, he's compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness is one of the translations. Um, But it actually maps to grace and truth. So those words are sort of rich in meaning, and it's sort of hard to get the right English word. Different translations choose different ones. But again, John here chose those two words. That's four. Two words on purpose to say, hey, Jesus is the God who introduced introduced himself to Moses, full of grace and truth. Isn't that cool? Did I underline any other words and put them in bold on this slide? Go ahead. Dwelling. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about dwelling next. Now, class, I want, (laughs) I want some robust participation class. (laughs) Okay. I'm in a goofy mood this morning. I think it's because I'm tired. Merrily asked, who, was anybody feeling weary? I raised my hand. I was feeling a little weary this morning. Sometimes that translates into being a little, like, punchy, a little goofy. Yeah. Grumpy or goofy? Goofy's better than grumpy, so try to be goofy with you guys. Jesus made his dwelling among us. So it means he tabernacled among us, right? which points right back to Moses. Moses is the guy who got the plan for the tabernacle from God, right? And what's the tabernacle? It's the tent thing they took with them everywhere they went as they traveled, and it's where God's presence from heaven dwelled among the people. So what's John saying? Jesus is God from heaven. He dwelled among us in the flesh. He's God. It's a really cool way of saying it. In chapter 3, John begins to talk about the mission of the Son, Jesus. This is a really familiar verse, but it's really important. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, going back to that same phrase, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The mission of Jesus. Again, he's the one and only son, the begotten son. This is his role. Father, son, and spirit. Jesus is the son. What's his mission? Was he sent to bring condemnation? No. (laughs) No. He was sent to save and offer eternal life. And so just again, hammer away at the point. Father, son, and spirit. One God, 
in unanimous decision said, we want to offer forgiveness, salvation, eternal life to all who will accept it. We're going to do that through the son, through Jesus. We don't want to condemn. We want to do this. This is better. That's what our God is like. Okay. I want to do something else with you guys. One more spaghetti on the wall here. Spend some time looking at a parable of Jesus that merely talked just briefly about last week. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And so this is where Jesus is revealing um, to his hearers and to us, the readers of the Gospels, what God is like, what the Father is like. But then, if he's one God and Jesus embodies God, I want to look at it and think about him too, all right? We're going to look at it, what it says about the Father in the story, that's Father God, and then we're going to map it onto Jesus and see if it fits. It does. (laughs) In case you were wondering. So the prodigal's father equals our heavenly father embodied in his son. That's where we're going. Okay, so in summary, Luke chapter 15. This is another one of my favorite spots in the Bible. If you can have a favorite spot. A man has two sons. One asks for his inheritance, equivalent to wishing his father dead. His father surprisingly gives it to him. And he goes to a faraway land and squanders the money on reckless living. And he runs out of money. He finds himself in dire straits. A famine hits. He is at the bottom of the barrel and he does not know if he's even going to survive. So he says, I'm going to go back to dad, return to my home village and see if at least I can get a job and some food for my stomach so I don't die. And what happens next is nothing short of astounding. I want to read it to you. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, quick servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is so stinking good. (laughs) If you ever dig in and study something, study this. I'll I'll get you started today. Um, So it says the father was filled with compassion for his son, right? He sees him afar off and he's, what emotion comes up? Compassion. God is compassionate. Remember, gracious and compassionate God. That's what God is like. It's Exodus 34. And then what does he do? The God who's filled with compassion, that's an emotion that leads to action. He comes down off the porch of the house and runs to meet his son at the edge of the village. So picture this, guys. I'm a dad. You can use me to picture. But imagine I'm not wearing pants. That's weird to say. (laughs) Don't imagine that. Imagine I'm wearing a a robe (laughs) as a first century Jewish man. Rather than pants. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) It got weird, didn't it? (laughs) Uh, Sorry about that. It happens every once in a while. 
Let's start over. Rewind. Now imagine me wearing a robe. <laughs> That's better. In order to run, you would lift your robe up so your legs can move freely, okay? But I think it's in Leviticus. There's stuff about like, hey, don't lift your robes. Don't let people see your legs. It's a very humiliating thing. And so <clears throat> a man like the father of the prodigal, he owned property, right? He had enough to give an inheritance to his son to go off, and he's still, you know, has animals and land and stuff going on. So he's probably fairly wealthy. And so he would have been an honored, uh, an honored person in the community, a man of res- that you would respect. And so to lift his robe and run is to humiliate himself. Ah, but this is the heart of the father. To humiliate himself for a purpose, to protect the son, right? The son returns. Anybody grew up in a small town? Okay, right? Everyone knows your name and all your business. Everybody knows this prodigal ran off with half of his father's stuff, and now he comes back, obviously with none of it. He's been feeding pigs. Looks a mess. What are they going to do? They're going to mistreat him. You dirty rat, how could you do that? How could you count your father dead? He's a good man. And who knows what physical abuse they might heap on him. But the father lifts his robes and humiliates himself to protect his son from that. Whoa, that's incredible. He greets the son with an embrace. The father is warm and personal in expressing love to his children. He kissed him. This is a common greeting. Again, we're not used to this, but maybe a movie or... I don't know, some experience in another culture. The cheek-cheek kiss thing is a sign of like meeting someone with a greeting of respect and honor for one another. And the the father gives this to his son. What did the son deserve? Whack, whack, or worse, right? But the father greets him with a kiss. He says, go get my best robe and put it on him. Remember, he says to the servants, quick, get my robe. So this would have been the robe that the whole village saw the father come to wedding feasts in. You know, come to big events wearing the robe. Put it on the son so everyone knows I've accepted him. Put a ring on his finger. He's given authority to make decisions on behalf of the father. Why? (laughs) He is not a good decision maker, obviously. And yet that's what the father does. Sandals on his feet represent that he's not coming back to be a slave in the father's house, which was the best he had hoped for when he was at the bottom of the barrel in a foreign land. But he comes back and he's not a slave in the house. He's a son. Get him some sandals for his feet. And then there's those two phrases. Let me go back and just read them. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. Literature. Uh, The way this is phrased has an implication. The son was dead and someone made him alive again. The actions of the father resurrected this son. That's what it implies. Powerful. (laughs) It's the same with the next one. He was lost and has been found. Someone found him and restored him. He was lost. The son didn't find his way home. That would be, that's not what Jesus was saying here in the way he phrased it. The son returned to the village, but the father found what was lost and restored him. 
<clears throat> okay. So, oh, the last thing is the celebration, the feast. It's total reconciliation. It's total restoration. It's a party. Come on, fattened calf. Let's eat. Let's make music. Let's dance. This is good stuff. The father is totally happy and ecstatic and invites everyone to join him in it. Okay, so this is the heart of our heavenly father, you guys. Which was Marilee's topic last week. Let's map it onto the sun to think about Jesus in this week's part of the series. Uh, Embodied. It's all the same bullet points in case you didn't catch that. Embodied by Jesus. But let's think through it, okay? Did Jesus show compassion on anyone in his life and ministry? Absolutely. To the destitute, to the sinners that everyone pushed to the outside. The ostracized, the outcast, the sick, the lame, the leper, the poor, the prostitutes. Man, he showed compassion where compassion was needed. Because he's the one God. Did Jesus humiliate himself to restore us? Absolutely. The cross is about the most humiliating death you could think of. Right? He was mocked, beaten to a bloody pulp, publicly hung on a cross to die, mocked again, right? Falsely accused. How much does that suck? You ever been falsely accused? It's horrible. Jesus was just humiliated. Um, I think it's in Hebrews. For the joy set before him, he endured that. He said, I'll be humiliated to protect the people that I love. Jesus was flesh and bones. He was the personal love of God expressed. Just as the father runs and hugs and embraces the son, Jesus came and became one of us. You remember uh, a couple weeks ago, I showed that video of the chosen scene where Jesus touches the leper. It's a personal touch with Jesus. Do we get the slap that we deserve from Jesus? No, we get forgiveness. Great examples in John chapter 8, where um, those religious leaders who deserve some anger (laughs) and get it appropriately from Jesus. In another scenario, they bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, and they're like, hey, the law says to stone her. And what does he do? Yep, she deserves it. Go for it. No. (laughs) He goes, all right, well, whoever doesn't have any sin, you, you throw the first stone. And they all leave. He protected her and forgave her. He didn't treat her as her sin deserved, did he? What about the robe from the story? We're actually clothed with the righteousness of Jesus if we accept him as Lord and Savior. We become recognizable children of God through what he did. That's cool. Jesus, by humiliating himself, humbling himself, dying, he he humbled himself as much as anyone could. And he's been exalted to the highest place. He sits at the right hand of God. He will return and he will rule forever. And he has invited you to make him your Lord and your Savior, to join him in that rule and reign. The ring on the finger, not a wedding ring, but like a signet ring in the Bible. Be like the authority of the king to rule on his behalf. Jesus welcomes you into that. What about the sandals? The Bible says we're all slaves to sin, right? Barefoot, barefoot prodigal returned. But Jesus says, no, through what he did at the cross, we get sandals on our feet. We become no longer a slave to sin, 
but sons and daughters of God. What great love the Father has lavished on us, that we can be called children of God, and that's what we are. It's 1 John 3. Okay, what about those two cool phrases? My son was dead and is alive again, right? The Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but made alive in Christ. The work of our one God is in Jesus to resurrect you from sin and death and to give you eternal life. Come on. Jesus, one of his mission statements, he said, I've come to seek and save the lost. Just like the father found his lost son, Jesus came to find lost sons and daughters. Isn't that good? If that's good, say, that's good. You guys will do anything, won't you? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Don't abuse it when you're preaching. (laughs) Okay, in conclusion, what have we learned today? Bill is goofy. But other than that, we learned that the Lord is one. Father, Son, and Spirit speak with one voice in perfect harmony like a choir. Unlike our Supreme Court, Father, Son, and Spirit do everything by unanimous decision. They are of one substance and character. The perfect combination of justice and mercy, both full-on, perfectly accomplished together as one all the time, which we can never do, so it's hard to understand. What about the Bible? It's a unified and continuous story of God's redemptive plan that climaxes in Jesus. How about Jesus? He's the Son one of the three members of the Trinity, pre-existing, not created, but before everything was created, by whom everything was created. He's divine, and yet he became human. He's God, and he's one of us, full of grace and truth, sent to seek and save the lost. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He took our punishment. He bore it's one of those Christianese words. He, he carried on him our sin on the cross. Can you imagine that? Like my, <laughs> my own sin feels a difficult thing to bear. Can you imagine bearing the sins of just everyone in this room? Can you imagine bearing the sins of everyone in Kalamazoo, in Michigan, in the United States, in the world, for all of history? Whoa. Thank you, Jesus. He carried that to the cross. For us. Come on. How beautiful is that God that we just described this morning? How forgiving, how loving, you know, how perfect. So the question remains will you respond to Him? If you see Him for who He is, will you respond like Deuteronomy encourages us to do with wholehearted devotion? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Early. Thank you. You can leave that slide up. Thank you, Bill. That was so good just to spend a morning thinking about the unity of the Trinity and how the Father and the Son specifically are working together. There's not a good cop, bad cop. So I just pray that, you know, the truth about Jesus would really impact you deeply and go beyond. It needs to be head knowledge, but go beyond that into the depths 
of our being because that's where we live from. That's where our words come out of, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and that's where our actions stem from. And so that's my prayer, that it would really transform us to our core. Um, but I want to just give you an opportunity to pray and um, respond with wholehearted devotion in your own words quietly. So we're just going to take a minute with some beautiful ministry music playing and I want you to be able to respond to the Lord and tell him how beautiful he is. Express your devotion. He says, love me with your whole heart, soul, and strength. And you can, and you can uh, share that devotion with him this morning. Also, he talked about the son came to save the reality is, if you haven't been saved by the Son, you're drowning. And Jesus is standing there with an outstretched hand, and all you have to do is grab it. And he will save you. He, um, he's, Bill said, speaking of the adulterous woman, Jesus didn't treat her as her sin deserved. No, Jesus treated himself as her sin deserved. And so when he saves you, he takes the punishment for all your sins and you're able to then have eternal life with him instead of eternal life apart from him. So let's just go to a time of prayer. Lord, we just bow our heads and close our eyes and focus on you. We just want to express our devotion our wholehearted devotion to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our one Lord. Help me to love you with my whole heart, my whole soul, my whole strength. give us a vision for what life looks like when we live it in wholehearted devotion to you. And just let the Holy Spirit give you a picture in your mind's eye of what that looks like for you and the Father when you are wholeheartedly devoted back to him. He's wholeheartedly devoted to you. Show us what that's like, Father. of what that's like. The picture I saw was, um, I saw myself, I remember 
thought about this before, but I saw myself as the prodigal son. I saw myself clothed in the father's robe with sandals and a ring, and I saw myself living life with those articles on. Bless each one who heard this message this morning that they would be able to walk in wholehearted devotion to a gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness kind of God. Thank you, Jesus. Bless your name. Bless your church. Amen.